to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Ezekiel 17. So the last time the message was titled, Forget, Question Mark, or Fruit. And really neat, you know, especially for those that are new to the things of God. You can go to a church for maybe 10, 15 years, and if they're not really delving into the Word of God, you you have questions. Well, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that? So we actually talked about spiritual fruit. What does spiritual fruit look like? What does it mean? What, how do I bear it? You know, there's a lot of metaphors and symbolism in the scripture. So we really covered that. We went into John 15 in addition to Ezekiel. This morning, the message is titled Personal Responsibility Towards God. And again, great discussions. Uh, we're looking at this situation in 6th century BC, uh, Babylonian takeover of the known world. Uh, Jerusalem, Israel gets sucked up into this, right? Uh, you can go to your history books. You'll find everything that the Bible says is spot on with even what secular historians say that happened. History is history. It either happened or it didn't happen. So what, a lot of what we see is how God deals with his people sort of as a monolith, right? But at the same time, he deals with them individually, That's what I love about God. One of the many things I love about God is that he knows what's going on in the world with billions of 7.8 billion people on the planet, but he also can attend to and pay attention and work with us as individuals, right? God is a personal God. And that is so, so important. We look out at the world. We look out. I talked about Afghanistan this morning. And it's like the world is a big place. You know, I'm sure God has better things to do than to deal with my little problems. But that's not true. God does want us to pray. He wants to answer us. He wants to uh, help us to understand his ways. So personal responsibility towards God. And you'll see why I titled it. You'll see what the Israelites in 6th century BC were going through as they were dealing with their God. But we're also going to see the next chapter, the personal ramifications or consequences of that. So we're going to look at this in four parts. So starting in Ezekiel 17, the parable of the two eagles. Very interesting. And the word of the Lord came to me as Ezekiel speaking, saying, Son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel and say, now this is roughly a year or so before the Babylonians totally took over Jerusalem in 586 BC. God is warning the people in so many different methods. Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with large wings and long pinions full of feathers and various colors came to Lebanon and took from the cedar the highest branch. He cropped off its topmost young twig and carried it to a land of trade. He set it in a city of merchants. He took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. He placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. It grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, the first eagle, but its roots were under it, so it became a vine, brought forth branches and put forth shoots. There was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers, and behold, this vine bent its roots toward him. So it's 
facing one of the eagles, and then a new one comes by, the second one, and it bends its roots, very important, towards the second eagle. It stretched its branches toward him from the garden terrace where it had been planted, that he might water it. It was planted in good soil by many waters. So the first eagle did this vine justice, but now it's turning towards the second eagle. To bring forth branches, bear fruit, and become a majestic vine. Thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? All of its spring leaves will wither, and no great power of, or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. It's going to be unstable, right? I added that. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither? When the east wind touches it, it will wither in the garden terrace where it grew. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, now we see this in the New Testament, right? Where Jesus poses a riddle or a parable, right? Or a physical illustration or a word illustration. And then Jesus says, this is what the parable means. So now he starts to assign meanings to the symbols, right? Say now to the rebellious house, the Israelites, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. And he took the king's offspring, made a covenant with him and put him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be abased and not lift itself up, but that by keeping his covenant, it might stand. But he rebelled against them by sending his ambassadors to Egypt so Babylon, if you know your geography, you're in Israel. Babylon, if you look at it, a map is to the east. Uh, Egypt is to the southwest. And again, I love history. I love reading history books. And I'm like, I laugh. I'm giddy. You know, my, my wife's like, what are you laughing about? I'm like, they say everything the Bible said. And they, re- they reaffirm what the Bible says. Right? You just have to study it. So the kingdom might be abased, not lift itself up, but that keeping his covenant might stand. But he rebelled against them by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. And that king did die in Babylon. Um, sorry, the uh, Zedekiah ends up dying in Babylon. That's the last king of the southern kingdom. Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons, since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath, which he despised and my covenant, which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare symbolism. But you get the point. I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for the treason which he had committed against the Babylonians. No, he said against me. We'll talk about the oath Zedekiah makes. All his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind and you shall know that I the Lord have spoken. So again, he tells these things before they happen. That's called prophecy. Okay. Number one out of four is the parable of the two eagles. Um, we'll look at the symbolism. The first eagle is Babylon. The king of Babylon is King Nebuchadnezzar had many color colors, wings and large pinions. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, if you look up history was a very charismatic figure. 
He was brutal in war, but he was very charismatic. Even when I was in grade school, we learned about the Babylonian kingdom, and a lot of people know the name Nebuchadnezzar. They've heard it before, right? The large cedar, don't be thrown off by the large cedar in Lebanon. Uh, this is a line of the kings of of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. The topmost twig was King Jehoiachin. Now, my wife and I moved to Ocean County, and for some reason, the cedar, beautiful. They smell good. They're beautiful. There's cedar trees everywhere. They just walk around the neighborhood. And it's so funny. I was observing. I, I giggle to myself a lot. When I'm by myself, some passing by might say, some, something might be wrong with him. But I'm just, I'm just musing, right? I'm, I'm laughing. Um, because now, as I'm studying Ezekiel, I look at the cedar. And how is it different from the average tree? A lot of your trees, they grow vertically, but they also grow horizontally. They, they build these bows. And they, there's lateral branches. And they're beautiful. And they're very full or rounded. But the cedar tree usually has a main shoot, and it's very thick, and it goes literally, you could stand under it, very little waviness. It goes straight up, and you see these little twigs at the top. God knows what he's talking about. And when he does a parable, all the symbolism is is right on. So again, I'm, I'm looking at the cedars in my neighborhood, and I'm just remembering this, and I can't help but laugh to myself in a good way. So King Jehoiachin was really the last king. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar scoops him up, takes him by force, and his family brings him to Babylon. He puts a vassal king, Zedekiah, in his place on the throne. Zedekiah makes an oath to God that he's going to listen to uh, Nebuchadnezzar and that he's going to do right, but that's not what happened. So verse 4, the twig, the Jehoiachin was taken to the city of merchants. At the time, um, you know, Babylon was the global capital of the world. A lot of busyness was going on in in Babylon. So you see that. Verse 5 through 6, the eagle plants, the first eagle plants these, uh, this new sprig. Uh, he, he plants this seed and water and gives it the water, gives it good soil. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar has his new guy, Zedekiah, and he says, everything's going to be okay with you and the Israelites. You just need to submit to me because everybody else is. That's just the way they were back then. God told them, Jeremiah told them, Zedekiah, but he didn't listen. Well, we see that it's a vine of low stature because the kingdom is fading. The kingdom used to rely on God himself, and it was very prosperous. So in the later years, when the kings became increasingly wicked and God withdrew more, more the kingdom became a kingdom of low stature. There's a lot of stuff in here. Uh, verse 7 and 8, the second eagle, uh, Egypt, Pharaoh Hophra. If you go into your history books and look up Pharaoh Hophra, he said to Zedekiah, yeah, I'll help you fight, fight off the Babylonians. Big mistake for Zedekiah should have listened to God. So the vine now towards this, it turned towards the second eagle, all right, uh, which is Egypt. Egypt tries to rescue the Babylonians, but fails miserably. And then the Egyptians go back home and the the people of Jerusalem are stuck with this present situation. Hence, 588 to 586 B.C. Uh, siege and ultimately breach of the walls, etc. So a lot of things happen there. Um, God did take Zedekiah's oath that he swore towards the living God to Nebuchadnezzar. He took it seriously, but Zedekiah breaks the oath, and that's where all the problems start. So verse 9 and 10, he says, Will the vine survive the mighty east wind? The Babylonians were looked at, if you were anything west of them, as the mighty east wind. 
Look up your history books. These guys were brutal when they came in. You didn't want to. You wanted to appease them. So what God was saying, if you go in this route, I can't. Let me scratch that. God can do whatever he wants. I won't help you because you're setting such a bad example to the world. Um, and, and the wickedness was when we covered this in prior chapters. So will Nebuchadnezzar uh, be happy about this betrayal? The answer is no. And we know this from history. So he unleashed the fury, unleashed the fury like no other. In this first section, I just want to jump into this. There's a lot of interesting um, maxims in the Bible, uh, proverbs, so to speak. If we could just turn to Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 5. And this is a different book written by a different author. He says, would you make a vow to God? Do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. You know, uh, you hear a lot of worldly people. I swear to God, I swear to God. Why do you have to say that so many times? First of all, if you have to say it so many times, it it begs the question, what's your credibility like that you have to keep doing that? So what God is saying in his word is it's a foolish thing to keep invoking his name. And then, of course, not paying, you know, not not following through. It goes on, pay what you have vowed. It is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So God would prefer people would just not make a vow, not make an oath, not swear by him, and just be what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Jesus said, especially to Christians, let your yes be yes and your no, no. When I talk to people and I say I'm going to do something, I don't swear to anything. I don't swear to God. I don't swear by the church. I don't do, and people say, it's just so bizarre. I swear by my mother's grave. Like, she's already where she is. What's that going to change anything, you know? So there's, there's like superstition that kind of goes into our culture. But Jesus said, if you're a man or a woman of your word, that's going to get out. Your reputation will precede you. Oh, Joe or Bill or whoever says they're going to do it. You know what? I don't even have to bother them. I know they're going to do it. So Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Unfortunately, with Zedekiah, he invoked, there was just a lot more to this. And that's why it was so disastrous. There's a lot of history. It wasn't just the oath, but that was the icing on the cake. So verse 22, continuing on last few verses of this chapter. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. Right? So God is, God's now, instead of the eagle, he's clipping the topmost little twig and he sets it out i'll crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain on the mountain height of israel i will plant it and it will bring forth bows and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar under it will dwell birds of every sort in the shadow of its branches they will dwell And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree, and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. Two out of four is the hope in the Messiah, Jesus. Boy, is this powerful. And let me make my case. Isaiah 11.1. When the prophet, a few centuries before Jesus came to the earth, is reassuring his people is almost as if the prophets, I don't want to say almost as if, were saying when Jesus comes to the earth, you could miss him if you're looking for the wrong thing. Sort of like our culture in 2021, the culture of the first century were looking for the charismatic people. 
They were looking for the good-looking people. Has humanity changed? Not really. Let me read to you a little bit about what was prophesied about Jesus before he actually showed up. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. I'll read a little bit more. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. Right? Uh, And, well, just... His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Continuing on, Isaiah 53, very powerful scripture about a prophecy about Jesus coming uh, before it happened. 53, who has believed our report? And and I I covered Isaiah. You can get it in the archives if you're interested. Um, Who's believed our report? So in the sense that what we tell you might be unbelievable even by believers, right? You have to see things with your spirit and not necessarily with your eyes or with your ears. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him, father and son, as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So, all, listen, I'm, don't go through your house and take all the gorgeous pictures of Jesus and, and take them off your walls. But I'm just saying that what the prophecy was when you saw Jesus in his face, right? You see the, the strawberry blonde hair pictures and the, the blue eyes and the high cheekbones. And he looks like a male model. He probably didn't look like that. So, people... Look for him with your spirit and don't look with your eyes or your prejudices, even better. So there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. That's powerful. But hope in the Messiah? Listen, he came 2,000 years ago. He said he would come again. All the prophecies said that he would come a second time, and we look forward to his second return. Um, under this tree, according to what we just read, that the, all t- sorts of birds of every sort would, would sort of uh, take refuge in that. And that can also be a picture of the Gentile nations, right? We talked about this in Revelation. And folks, everyone is looking for a secular humanist geopolitical savior in the world, aren't they? Whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's Israel, whether it's the United States, maybe we should all go global, maybe none of these things are going to fix anything. I just got news for you. The answer is Christ. Christ is the Prince of Peace. But there's an inverse relationship. The more society pushes Christ out, and we're seeing it in American culture, the more chaos ensues. If you think... I don't, I have mixed feelings. I don't like when people say, you know, you have to get used to the new normal and you're not going to be able to do this. Listen, I just go out and I live my life. Okay. I, these people are wrong about everything. Um, but at the same time, Jesus tells us things are going to get worse in the culture, in the world. Americas as Americans, we've been insulated by two oceans for a very long time. We're starting to see that insulation erode and there's reasons for it, but Am I coming up here all depressed and mopey telling you this? Absolutely not. 
I haven't missed a beat. My pastors haven't missed a beat. My staff and many people in this church, because we know ultimately that it has to get worse before it gets better. And that's, listen, that's what we look forward to. Um, It getting better for everyone, not just us, but for the rest of the world. And they're going to see when the Lord returns that, wow, all the things that we tried were futile. So we talk about geopolitics. We talk about globalism, the, all these little saviors with a little S. It's not going to fix anything. In five years, we're going to see that all the things they said are going to come. They're going to not come to fruition. So this is the hope for the world. We pray the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look to God and we trust him and we believe him, right? That these things will happen and we look forward to it. So there's your hope. Uh, verse 18, I'll go, go through it. It'll be the last reading for this morning. So there's a shift here from the monolithic, uh, you know, people of God together as a culture, as a nation to a personal application. And this really is where things get very important for individuals. So he says, the word of the Lord came to me again. This is Ezekiel speaking, saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, in English, we asked those Israelites and we we said something. They'd be like, they look at us like, what? what are you talking about? Well, we do the same thing. They're colloquialisms, they're sayings, they're proverbs. And what this proverb meant in those days in that culture was that the fathers made really bad decisions. And we as kids were suffering for their decisions. And God says, don't say that. Don't say that. He says, as I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, and he is not eaten on the mountains. Now I'm going to go through these scenarios rather quickly. Um, So the first scenario is a guy who's righteous. And we're going to talk about what he does and what these things mean, etc., etc. So he does what's lawful and right, is not eaten on the mountains or the mountain shrines, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached the woman during her impurity. If he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, with all the things this guy does, and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury or interest, nor taken excessive interest, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man. If he has walked in my statutes, has kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. Second scenario. If he begets a son, so he's got a son now who's a robber <laughs> or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, who does none of those duties, but he has eaten, has eaten on the mountains, or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols, or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall die. His blood will be upon him. Third scenario. If, however, he begets a son, is a grandson now, who sees all the sins of which his father has done and considers, but does not do likewise. That's very important. Very important because, you know, we're social creatures and sometimes the enemy uses our ties 
to siblings, parents, children, spouses, friends, peer groups, that they can bring us down, right? So here is this grandson who breaks away from the evil that his father does and walks more in the ways of his grandfather. Let's read this. He has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the isles of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife. He has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, right? These are these oaths, I'm going to do something, and you actually do it. Nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increased, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. God's not going to hold it against him because his father was evil. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son, or mother and daughter, or you get the picture. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Fourth scenario. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, keeps all statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of all the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Someone turns their life around. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Last scenario, we're going to take a little time on this one because this one probably is the most confusing to some. Remember, we're also in the Old Covenant reading this. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live. All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die yet. The house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair, O house of Israel. Is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? First, and again, God God sees the conversations um, in the culture. And first they thought, we started out with, well, the sins of the fathers uh, are going to put us in trouble and we're going to suffer. And God's like, don't say that. I deal with people on an individual basis. But then when he kind of comes up and he says, you know, if somebody's really wicked and they turn their life around... And I accept them. Now you're telling me I'm not fair? Like, you can't have it both ways. Jesus said this uh, with him and John the Baptist. John the Baptist came, very stern, very strict. People were afraid of him. He was like, oh, he's too harsh. And then Jesus came and they said, oh, you, you drink with, you hang out with sinners. And, you, you, know, you, you know, you fellowship with them. And they're dirty people. And I'm paraphrasing. And Jesus is like, well, would you, you guys, you know, the stern guy you didn't like. I'm coming in a different way, much more tender and stuff, and you don't like that either. And this is humanity. This is 2021 culture. It's like, 
people have this attitude towards God. Like no matter what he does, he can't do right. And God's like, I'm God. All my ways are right. It's you're the ones who are deceived. So let's go through these. Three out of four is everyone stands before God on their own. Nobody gets a defense attorney. And you know what I love about this is, is that when you look at the world and even look at our, sadly, our court systems, usually the people who can afford high-powered attorneys have a better chance. I was in the, in the criminal justice system for 25 years. They have a better shot of beating the charges than somebody, sadly enough, who gets a public defender. And I've met great public defenders, and they work their hearts out. Um, but you, you see sort of this principle. Then they go with bail reform. Um, again, it's something I experienced and let everybody out, and that causes a problem with society. It's like mankind doesn't know what to do with himself or herself. All of the answers that we're seeing in our culture, are just they're just so messed up. Because we've lost the people who actually were, um, who came into elected office and had a serious faith and trust in their God. We're starting to lose that. So people are just making decisions, and some of the decisions are worse than the former decisions. Um, But the point is, when you stand before God, you actually do have an advocate, according to the scripture, if you're in Jesus Christ. So no matter what's thrown at you, and not that God would do it, but any accusation from the evil one, he can, I can, if I die today and I, I'd be standing before God, Satan can throw everything at me. I'm just going to be quiet because Jesus is going to answer for me. And Jesus died for my sins. And Jesus would be like, yeah, I know he did all that stuff, but I took that to the cross. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting concept. All the unfairness in the world in 2020, God fixes this, right? So let's talk about this. Um, in Exodus 20, verse 5, he said that he would visit the sins because I know I have some Bible students in here. Well, what about Exodus 25 of the fathers to the sons to the second and third and such generation? But that was if your family had these generational sins that you just kept following and you end up dying in that state. Your grandfather, grandmother, your parents, you. And it just keeps, the dysfunction keeps going down the line. That's why I say, and some of you need to hear this, you need to break with, sadly enough, people that are very close to you, Jesus says this, um, if they're influencing you away from God. It could be a spouse, it could be kids, it could be uh, professionalists, and I've seen it. People are in the church, they're on fire for the Lord, and they hook up with somebody or they get involved with something and then they're gone there's no concern for god at all not even at home um so you got it you have to break those things right so exodus 20 refers to the fact that i mean listen i grew up in a in an ungodly home my mother had her sins my father had his and uh, i started to follow in their footsteps and then i got saved and i'm like no i'm not following their footsteps anymore You've got to break away from it, folks. And that's probably the hardest thing I've ever seen people do. Blood is thicker than water. No, it's not. It's going to mean nothing. Only his blood is going to do what needs to be done to save you from your sins. So this, this proverb, okay? Again, let me just go back to it real quick. Is, is the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And then you look at American culture and we have our sayings too. Um, you know, even the one God helps those who helps themselves. Uh, people think they're quoting the Bible. Sometimes God helps people who can help themselves. 
So that's not, again, it's a saying. I don't know where it came from. I should look it up. Um, but the Hebrews had similar colloquialisms, similar sayings in Proverbs, right? Cultural sayings, rabbinical commentary. Um, even in the church today, Christian in Christianity, the priest said this, the pastor said this. Yeah, but check it with scripture. Maybe he made a mistake or she made a mistake or somebody made a mistake, right? Um, what matters, Jesus would bring everybody back to the scripture. What does the Bible say? You're always going to find purity in the Bible. Okay. So God answers this because there's an element of, well, God's not fair. So of course, of course God answers it. Verses five through nine, you have these examples, the example of the righteous man. What makes one righteous, right? What made Abraham righteous according to Romans four? Abraham before the law, before before circumcision, easy for me to say, before um, a lot of his good works. It was Abraham's faith. Faith was the vehicle to justification. It was God that justified Abraham. Abraham knew that God was going to send the Messiah. In the first century, the Messiah was sent, right? So we look at it pre-Christ, you know, trusting in God, believing in him, right? The Bible says by his faith, righteousness was imputed to him in Romans uh, 4. Um, In the New Testament, it's our faith in Christ because he actually came and did the sacrifice, right? So there's a few concepts here is behavior follows belief. So it's not about, and this, this is where people make a mistake too. Well, I have to do good works because I'm reading about this guy who did all these good works, good works versus bad works. That's not what he's talking about. Behavior follows beliefs. What the guy would what God was saying about this man, hypothetically or, or real, not really sure, but because he had a strong faith in God, that he, his behavior followed his belief system, okay? Um, lifestyle, lifestyle follows faith. And last Sunday, we spoke, spoke about spiritual fruit. Now, just a few quick things to move on to the next one is um, some of these, remember, we're reading the Old Covenant right now. There's maxims for, for, you know, throughout the Old and the New Testament, but he says to be with a woman in her impurity. Um, remember, this is part of the Old Covenant, but that's not the same today, right? Very few things that actually uh, transferred over. Now it's a belief in Christ. So some of these old rules and stuff don't really apply. Uh, B, not eaten on the mountains or the mountain shrines. Well, that was something where people would go to these high places and there would be these shrines and they would worship these demonic beings. And God's like, how could you be with me if you're, it's just weird. So this man, the righteous man, didn't go up to the mountain shrines. And people have their own idols today. Sometimes they make loved ones an idol, you know. Um, C, usury is interest, sort of like credit card (laughs) or predatory loans, right? Um, But a a usury or if you loan somebody money, if you try to extract because they were desperate, like some predatory loans today, right? In Hebrew law, right, in God's law, that was forbidden. He didn't want a a whole sort of a slavish class, an economic slavish class that were beholden to people who had the ability to loan the money but took advantage of them. And that's where the year of Jubilee and, and, you know, um, you wouldn't have generations of family of poverty because God, through his law, would reverse that, the 50th year of Jubilee. So just to throw some of the older stuff in there, but those principles still apply. Um, You know, should you rip people off? If you're doing well and somebody needs your help, no, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. It still applies. So verse 10 through 13, the second example is an unrighteous son. 
he doesn't walk in the ways of his father. But his actions also are a reflection of his beliefs or lack thereof. So the kid does all the, the wrong things because he just doesn't care. He has no tie to God or, you know, God's laws and such. Remember, it isn't what we do or don't do that saves us or condemns us, but our actions are evidence of what, where our hearts are with God. This is the Romans versus James discussion. Some people say, I read Romans and I read James and they seem to be contradictory. No, Romans says we're justified by faith. James says, oh, you really are a believer? Well, if you see somebody starving and you walk past them or somebody who's got no, no clothing, I'm paraphrasing, are you really a believer? He goes, you know, show me what you do in your life and it shows me whether you're really a believer or not. So James wasn't uh, refuting Romans. What James was saying is, that's the evidence of your faith. So they, they sort of have to go hand in hand. Isn't it strange? You know, and I'm sure we've met people like this. I, I would say it's more rare that someone's, oh, God, God, you know, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, church, like all this stuff, right? And then everything they do is awful. They're mean to people. They rip them off. They're not good employees. They're, you know, you can go through the gamut. That makes no sense at all. You know, your, your behavior has to follow your belief system, right? So what God is trying to give us is some of these examples that we can see, but it was a reflection of the person's heart, okay? Now, Bible scholars um, have, have debate on that person shall die. Remember, we're in the Old Covenant, and if somebody was truly that wicked, sometimes their life would expire sooner than it would normally expire. Um, we also know that if someone dies um, totally rejecting God, well, they're going to have to face judgment. It's just what it is, right? Whether we like it or not, that's the reality. So there's physical death and there's also spiritual death later on in the afterlife. Verses 14 through 17, see the example of the righteous grandson. Now, this is interesting because he observes his grandfather, who's a good guy, righteous guy. He observes his dad who probably said to his son, Come, yeah, 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 just take an extra few bucks. You know, you don't have to follow up on that promise. And, you know, sometimes within, in life, if our father and grandfather are both in their life, our father, because of the closeness of the age, can have more of an influence on us. But in this respect, the son observes his dad, observes his granddad, makes a decision. I want to be like granddad. I don't want to be like my father. And it would behoove us, if we're in those situations, you might be watching on the live stream. God's word may be talking to you. And it's, it's going to save you. It really, it's going to save you a lot of aggravation. It's going to hurt in the beginning. You know, be a, be a, um, listen, I didn't cut everybody off when I got saved. I try to be a positive influence to them. As a matter of fact, through me, m- most of my family received Jesus. But I was going to make it, I made it clear that I wasn't going to follow in their footsteps. We were all dysfunctional, right? That's how I grew up. Verses 21 through 23, uh, the fourth out of the the fifth example, D, is the example of the wicked man repenting. 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us that God desires all, every woman, every man, everyone on the planet to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants all of us to be saved. I just want to read to you a quote from Warren Wiersbe in his book, Be Reverent, on the subject. He says, quote, 
This guy's a theologian. He passed away about a year and a half ago. One of my favorite theologians. He said, God has no delight in the death of the wicked. Why? Because God knows what's waiting for them after that. But they made that choice. So God has no delight in the death of the wicked, but he isn't obligated to invade their hearts and invade their minds and force them to obey. Right? Free will can be a a, a rough sword, can it be? Oh, yeah, I got the free will. I can do whatever I want. I'm free. Yeah, great. You can. And you live in America. You got even more freedoms. Be careful with that. Choose wisely. Choose the path that you're on wisely. Right? So God doesn't force us, but he does draw us. Last example, and then we're going to close, is the example of what appears to be a righteous person for a time that turns to wickedness and stays there. So this to me is, I can't help but when I read these articles. Um, so Joshua Harris was a, a Christian author for years. And he had this big announcement. He says, I'm no longer, a, of course, the media was there and stuff, which makes me very suspicious. He says, I'm no longer a Christian. Oh, and by the way, I'm leaving my wife too. Okay, you got some issues, but hey, you know, this is a great thing for you, or he thinks it is. Uh, worship, um, two worship leaders, uh, two, is a popular group, uh, famous work, Christian worship. W- one guy, Kadidas, um, Oh, yeah, I'm no longer a Christian anymore. Yeah, I did Christian worship and I, I praise the Lord. And, or what about these pastors, right, or theologians or, you know, every so often it comes out and sometimes Christians are frightened by it. I'm not. I'm not. You know, maybe they do these awful things and they, they go totally secular. I kind of think that that's what, to me, that's what they're talking about. This is going to happen. And, my, and then the question is, and, and people can debate this, well, was that person ever saved in the first place? And then we start to get into these hypothetical, well, what if that happens to me? Well, you can control what happens to you. <laughs> Let him worry about what he's doing. And if it's totally stupid, stay away from it. You just continue to follow the Lord and do the right thing. And you're going to be fine, <laughs> right? So, but, but you kind of see these things. Um, Charles Templeton, uh, the man, I don't know if he passed away yet, but he was extremely, he's in his 80s. And, and they did an interview and he was a big theologian, a big um, evangelist, Billy Graham, right? And then he, you know, it's, it's so amazing. There's usually some catalyst that happens in their life. And instead of saying to the Lord, you know, I'm really, I'm struggling, help me out with it. They just go, all right, I'm abandoning God because it doesn't fit with what he says in his word. You know, God does allow U-turns. So Charles Templeton, you can look him up. Um, big wig in the Christian community. Uh, I guess he, uh, after two wives and now his secretary, uh, he decides he's not a Christian anymore. And he writes a book called Farewell to God. After that, I mean, why do you got to do that? Like, seriously, why do you got to mess with other people who may be weak in the faith, who are frightened by what you're writing? You're the one who you're going to stand before God. So anyway, this guy, famous guy, too smart for his own good. Um, they do an interview with him just before, like in his later years. And somebody said to him, do you miss Jesus? And he started to cry. Now, could that guy repent again? He could, but it almost seems like he just was, he was crying, but he's going to stay in his footing. I miss Jesus. Well, then go back to him. Why do we have to make our lives so difficult, folks? I did this for years into my 20s, and then I just started to follow the Lord. And I'm like, you know what? I got to stop making these decisions. They're like insane. 
Okay, one more example, maybe for maybe you'll laugh, maybe you won't. Um, so today, Pastor Joe, you know, it doesn't mean that if you do something that's a big one or commit a felony, listen, I don't suggest you commit a felony. But if you do, it doesn't mean you're losing your salvation. So let's just say after I, I, I'm done with the pulpit, I go to the store and I see this really big screen. I'm not much of a TV watcher, but it's a really big t- screen TV and I can't afford it. And I, I grab it and I run out the door because I don't see security. And I put it in my pickup truck and I drive home. Did Pastor Joe lose his salvation? Is he going to go to hell? No. Let me just say for the record, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know? You know, yeah, my wife's like, what are you saying up there? Um, I'm going to go home and hopefully lead a quiet afternoon. I'm not even going to the store. But that was just a, a hypothetical. So sometimes we read the Bible, and if you're, if you're new in the faith, you read something, you get freaked out. I'm going to lose myself. No, that's not what it means. It means that, again, could we debate that the person ever truly know the Lord? Did they just make a decision to abandon God because they want to get as much as they can in this world? I don't know. I'm not in their head. Maybe when I get to heaven, God will explain why people do the things that they do. But this is a willing abandonment of God. It's willing. Right? It's they want, this is a choice that they make with their free will. And it continues for the rest of their life. So... So hopefully the police aren't watching this and they're going to monitor where I go after service. It just was a, let's just move on. Verse 30 through 32, last few verses. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, according, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord. Repent and turn from your transgression so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Repent and turn are really the same words with a little bit of subtle nuances, but God is very emphatic. I want you to turn. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Just turn. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? So he's speaking to them as a culture, but he's also speaking to them individually. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Very repetitive because when God repeats himself, it's something we should pay attention to. It's very important. You know, God looks out at this world and he cares about a lot of things. He cares about a lot of problems that humanity foists upon itself, the sin, the things that happen to people. But you know what God cares the most of, if I could speak for him, is that he wants everyone in his kingdom. Everyone. You could be from North America, South America, Europe, Asia, India, Australia. He doesn't care where you come from. He doesn't care what you look like. You know what he cares about? That spirit that he put inside of you, that uniqueness. When I do funerals, I say, why is everybody sad? Because that person cannot be replaced. Because with almost 8 billion people on the planet, that one person who passed away is so unique to their loved ones. No one can fill that void. That's why people cry at funerals. So, four out of four is, that's what it all boils down to. Repent, turn, and be saved. If you're watching, if you're here in person, or you're watching the live stream this morning, get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Right? We covered this in Ezekiel chapter 11, that heart of flesh versus the heart of stone to spiritual things. 
And verse 32, God has no pleasure in one who dies, in in an unrepentant, wicked person who dies. And we've made the case that he wants all to be saved. This is a timeless message from 2,600 years ago. It could have been written this morning. It still applies. So, personal responsibility towards God, whether it's the Israelites or the Americans or you personally. Right? He put out his word as an appeal to you. For you to turn, to repent. Big word, scary word to some. It just means to turn from your self-directed ways and turn towards God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.